Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome everyone to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Borgen. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty, as always. G'day, Steve. How are you, Pete? I'm good, thanks. So today, uh, we're doing a little mini-series on bubbles, uh, financial bubbles, and today we're going to cover how you can spot bubbles, or maybe I should rephrase that, can you spot a bubble? So Steve, let's get straight into it today. So I guess first and foremost, we need to answer that question. How do you characterize a bubble? So what are the characteristics of a bubble? There's a few, really. I mean, I was thinking about this before, and I think really it it breaks down to rational and irrational. You take it from there. So, for example, recently David Einhorn, who's a, a, a sort of famous value investor, was saying, look, it's not about valuation, but it's about the psychology. So I think valuation is, you know, for all intents and purposes, rational, and psychology is irrational. But I, I really think there's valuations matter. But what I suppose the, the argument is, well, do valuations reflect the psychology or vice versa? It's essentially, the way I see it is when you look at the valuation or, or when you're looking at a price of something, you're thinking about it in a rational framework, right? So you sort of, you know, you might do a discounted cash flow or, you know, something like that. I think what happens is as the price rises and once it starts to get a bit crazy, it then it, it then goes over into the sort of irrational mode. You know, if you're making money out of it, you tend to try and rationalise it rather than go, geez, this is really crazy, you know, I'm going to sell out because as you know, you know, nobody wants to miss out on the on potential profits. And so you can sell a company if it's making, you know, you've made 500% and then you go, oh, I'm going to sell out. You sell out and next minute it goes up another 400%. Or, you know, if you look at Tesla this year or Afterpay in the Australian market, they've just gone absolutely crazy. And so I think part of it is, it starts off as rational, but then it you know encroaches into the irrational. And I suppose that it when it gets irrational, you can't look at it with a rational framework, right? Because you re, you know you have a think about it. Um, you can't sort of look at drunk people when you're sober and make sense of their behaviour because you're not drunk. So you know it, you've got to think. I'd sort of think about it in those ways. Yeah, and I think uh, sometimes when it's when it's hard to make a comparison between, you know, if I go down to the local Coles supermarket or, or Woolies and buy a loaf of bread, I know roughly what that loaf of bread's got to, got to cost, right? Um, because I can easily compare it with other brands and so on. But it, it's interesting you mentioned the cash flow because if you think about something like a painting, 
there is no cash flow from that painting, probably only cash going out the door as you pay for insurance. So it's very much about um, interpretation when you're valuing those things. And, you know, if you work on the theory that probably someone will pay more for it in the future if it's a scarce commodity. And it's a bit the same. I think the biggest bubbles, therefore, often in the tech sector, because it's very difficult to put a valuation on a tech company because you're probably a lot of times not basing it on the on today's cash flows or even maybe the cash flows in the next five years. It's more about number of eyeballs or pay-per-click or metrics that uh, become very difficult to pin down. You know, Robert Schiller, who recently was sort of saying, oh, the stock market's really high, but he doesn't think it's, it's uninvestable or that people should sell out. But, you know, in his last book, Narrative Economics, he was basically saying it's all behavioural. His argument is a little bit like viruses, you know, with the COVID stuff. What he's saying is we get we get sort of infected with information. And because, you know, because we're social animals, what you find is we tend to follow the crowd because that's the way it's sort of safer. The other thing is the argument with low rates, um, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, the, the general belief is, oh, well, if rates are low, then, you know, valuations are okay if they're higher. But you've got, you've got to worry if rates are going to rise. But, it's, you know, at some stage rates are going to rise and so it's going to be, you know, that's when you start to get a bit of a, a, a problem when the sort of the rose-coloured glasses come off. But at the moment you sort of look at it and in, in any bubble the sort of thing you look at is, if well, if I can borrow at 1%, and I can generate a yield of, you know, two or two and a half, it sort of makes sense to, in you know, quote, unquote, invest, whether it's speculation or not, it's another thing. And I think that's what Schiller was sort of talking about recently. And I think the other characteristic is what you mentioned there about, you know, the old discounted cash flow, which is you find in bubbles people start to change the, the sort of parameters, you know, they move the goalposts. Is it expensive at two times, you know, standard deviation? Well, yeah, it could be, but however, you know, dot, 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 dot. And so it always turns out that you get, you know, like in 2000 it was the number of eyeballs, right? And recently or even in 2000 it might have been the the average revenue per user. Now it's about, as it was in 2000, all of these companies making no money but they're going to be great. And, again, that's another one of those characteristics, you know, where you start to see people say, well, you know, is a discounted cash flow really the best way to value a company? And what they're really saying is I want to find a way to justify this price because rationally I just, you know, I can't see it. So, you know, in, in that sense it makes it, really, it re- makes it really difficult to the point where even you know, Schiller, as you know, recently came out and sort of went, oh, well, you know, rates are low and so there's this and the CAPE ratio that, which seemed to me to be that classic idea of going, rather than sort of going, no, this is just absolutely insane madness, you can't really do that. So, you know, because when they investigated the 07 and 08 GFC, no one who was dragged before Congress, mentioned anything like that. They all went, oh, well, it was this or it was that. or So no one ever said, 
Well, no, it was just a bunch of greedy bastards, you know, trying to, you know, everybody was speculating like crazy and making, you know, bucket loads of money because, the, I mean, how do you deal with that? You know, it's really sort of quite difficult. On the, uh, I'm probably not a huge advocate of the concept of a bubble because I think, as we talked about in episode one of this mini series, I think, you know, quite often people use the phrase bubble for just a market that's expensive or market that's gone up and they've missed. And I think that's where the confusion can arise. And uh, one of the clearest sort of statistic that stood out to me was when you look at um, the price to sales ratio on on growth stocks. I mean, it, it is literally now at a level that we've not seen before. It's, uh, yeah. it, was, it was very low through 2009-10, but now it's back back to and above where we saw in the tech bubble. And it's like, well, yeah, may, maybe some of the, uh, the quote value type companies are, are not so bad. But when you look at the the price to sales ratio on growth stocks, it is really well, it's, it's the highest we've seen. And uh, yes, with a discounted cash flow, you might bring forward some of tomorrow's expectations because of the change in discount rate. But even then, half the time, these companies aren't making any money. I think it's difficult to predict when bubbles might burst because what brings the the crash around or the catalyst is so hard to predict. I mean, uh, I mean, <laughs> going back to the um, the painting point, um, I'm not even sure we should go there. But years ago, I think I've mentioned this on social media once. I bought a, a painting by Rolf Harris, which was very popular at the time. And of course, these days it's probably worth zero. Now you might say uh, <laughs> uh, the <best. laughs> It's, yeah, it's probably probably have to edit this out, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I guess that's an example. You just don't know. Ultimately, you know, expecting a price to go up, not based on any cash flow, um, the catalyst or cause is hard to predict. I think it's uh, probably true on the low side as well. A salient lesson for me this year was when when the oil price crashed, and um, you were saying, "Well, look, you can either pick out some of these." big oil companies or simply buy the energy ETF, which had gone from 100 to $25. And you know, intuitively, I was thinking, well, Steve, yeah, but, you know, look, the world's in a hole here. There's not much demand. But as you said, you can't really predict the catalyst or cause sometimes. You can just simply say, well, look, this stuff is dirt cheap and it won't stay that way. You, I think you said it in the last podcast or might have been just when we were chatting about, you know, Montier said, well, you know, if not cheap, when? But I think that... The characteristic is that you see, again, this stuff with Schiller or with other people like um, Jeremy Grantham, uh, Meb Baber, you know, this sort of people saying you get the narrative over the numbers and so it's sort of like, oh, but, you know, what about earnings? Ah, earnings are bullshit. You know, it's all about the future. Oh, okay, well, you know, what about this? Oh, well, that's not valid anymore because it's a whole new world, you know. So you, you get as long as the story is intact, then the price follows it. And in essence, really, I, I should invert that because really what happens is when the price rises, people start making stories about why the price is rising, regardless of whether it's, you know, it's re- it's, it's valid or not. Yeah, and, I think uh, actually uh, I was listening to Joseph Walker on the uh, excellent Jolly Swagman podcast and he said if you look at the financial bubbles in history, they, they very often begin with a good story. You know, there is actually a, an underlying fundamental trouble is the narrative takes over and that's why as you've said many times before you need to focus on statistics over stories because the stories can become ever more embellished on the way up they're sort of they go from being credible to then sort of saying okay yeah this is probably the way it's going to go because it's 
and a lot of it, as you know, is based around technology. So you tend to sort of think, yeah, okay, artificial intelligence, yeah, digitization, yep, right, okay, this is all making sense, self-driving cars. But then it gets to the point where you have to say, and it always comes back in my mind anyway, to price and value. And it's saying, yeah, okay, I know the story, but the price now has the story worked into it. And, you know, last week I went back and reread Warren Buffett's 1999 Sun Valley speech, uh, which he gave to all the tech bros in the bubble, right, just before it burst, um, to which he was roundly, you know, sort of scoffed at. But what he was saying was he went through the history of technology and he said, you know, aeroplanes were new, railroads at one point were the latest technology. And what he was sort of saying was, look, you guys, you know, there's a difference between the price and the value of something. Yeah, 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 we're going to have AI and, yeah, we'll probably have self-driving cars and robots at some stage. But the question is everybody knows that and so it's priced in. And so this is what you and I are talking about with the with the Kelly criterion stuff. You know, what Kelly says is to get an advantage, you've got to have information that somebody doesn't have. And so that can mean getting in early, you know, or realising that there's a flaw in the argument or, you know, for us it's like using the Kate ratio. So the thing I suppose is that the the price just gets so far ahead of itself that it, it does become difficult to predict it because it looks stupid but it, it can stay stupid for a really, really long time and the problem is you can't see the event that's going to sort of trigger it. And the argument is from people like Talib is that it doesn't matter what the event is, there's actually no real event that triggers it. What you do is you do that narrative bias where you, you look backwards and go, oh, it was, you know, dot, dot, dot that caused it, that caused the bubble to burst. But I think that the important part is, in my mind, is to say, how do we identify these conditions, which is what we're talking about now, you can look at it and say, look, it's in a bubble, then you can make a decision about, well, you know, do I want to participate in it or do I want to stand on the on the sidelines? Yeah, so we, uh, we talked in a previous episode a couple of series ago about a capital cycle based on future prospects and I guess it's the old supply and demand thing, you know, we... We've seen a huge acceleration in um, green energy, uh, the future of electric vehicles, self-driving, all of that. I mean, it's, it's sweeping. It's a sweeping craze now, and but it will lead to a huge amount of investment. And I assume over the coming years, um, all of the major companies and auto producers will swing in that direction. And you just need to be careful about the price you pay. So I think... Um, that's the, the the thing where bubbles can become dangerous is when the people say, well, the fundamentals don't matter, then no price is too high because all of those old valuation metrics, well, they're, they're missing the big picture here and you know, the future is is all um, about uh, something new and different. And there tends to be, I think, the, the more experienced investors can tend to get a bit scoffed at, a bit like um, Warren Buffett when he was booed off stage in 1999. You know, people didn't want to listen yeah. to the old heads because it's not exciting. You know, it, it, people wanted to hear that the tech tech uh, sector was just going to keep on booming. Yeah, yeah. It's the capital cycles a really good indicator, actually. Um, 
you know, if you think back, and this is the the thing I was saying, but I, I don't know if I talked about it in the first podcast we did, but, you know, like the reason why we have cheap internet now is because they spent a bucket load of money on infrastructure back in 2000. You know, if you if you spend $100 million or, you know, in this case billions to build something, but then it can't work at that price that you want to charge, well, you know, if someone comes along and says, well, I know you spent a billion, I'll give you $100 million, and now I can make it 20 bucks a month for someone to get into the internet, then that's actually, you know, in a way, that's actually a, a good thing for consumers. You know, that's the sort of the good outcome from a bubble. Um, and what you're talking about too with green technology, you know, in terms of um, solar energy, you know, in in 07, it might have even been before that. I think it might have been a little bit before that, but there was a, a raging investment in uh, solar cells and um, all sorts, you know, all things solar. And because I remember getting heaps of newsletters of, you know, oh, you've got to buy all these green things because they're, they're really great, you know, and you're going to make lots of money. And, of course, the same thing happened, you know, it burst. But here we are sort of 10 or 15 years later and now solar energy is really, really cheap. The reason why that is is because the infrastructure is the expensive bit. And if you can get somebody else to do the expensive bit and then fail and you can come in and pick it up really cheaply, well, you get to make all the money. What you were alluding to there before, you know, where you're saying the fundamentals don't matter, and that's what happens. You know, in the when you get a strong capital cycle, when you're spending 100 or 200 million, it's a bit like, yeah, 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 we'll get it all back because we've done this projection and we're going to grow it, you know, 30%, you know, per year. Um, all of those sorts of things to justify the price. Um, and then, of course, what you find out is that the projections are, you know, overly rosy. And then when reality sort of sets in, and that gets back to, remember Ben Graham said, you know, in the, in the short run it's a voting machine, in the long run it's a weighing machine. Once the, once the weighing gets in, it's a bit like, you know, the rose-coloured glasses come off. And I suppose that, that was what Buffett was trying to say to them in 99. You know, he was trying to say to them, you guys, we've had, you know, new technology before. It wasn't the internet, but, you know, aeroplanes were new technology. Railroads were new technology. And you're seeing it at the moment with Bitcoin, you know, the the, the stuff about Bitcoin's, what, just hit 23,000 or something. The, the argument is, and I still can't understand it, is what is Bitcoin worth? I mean, there's no, you know, it's not anchored to anything. And so, but will it go higher? Well, it probably will because you know you've got the you've got the momentum, and as you, um, as we've discussed before, you've got this really strong narrative. You know, governments are uh, governments are going to inflate away all the debt. Uh, governments can't be trusted. You know, so we've got to have this thing that we the people control, and that's Bitcoin. But you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But I'm sure somebody's going to make some money out of it. The capital cycle point is an important one. Uh, let's not go down the Bitcoin route because uh, we'll probably get that, that too much hate mail in the inbox. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose my only concern with uh, with Bitcoins is, well, you know, what if this technology is superseded by another coin and the supply changes? But let's let's not even go there. I think in, in property, I think um, 
Yeah, the, those uh, immutable laws of supply and demand always hold out over the long term. And uh, I think you've mentioned previously um, Bob Schiller talking about um, the glamour cities where people think, well, everyone's going to want to live in San Francisco and prices go crazy. And in certain Canadian cities, it was uh, Chinese investors and to a certain degree, um, Sydney and Melbourne as well. Uh, But ultimately, when prices go up, you just see more supply comes onto the market. So my understanding of housing markets over the years is that sometimes these bubbles doesn't necessarily see prices um, crashing across the board, but um, you do generally find that in the most supply responsive parts of the market, uh, which is often things like fringe suburbs where they just build new suburbs or high-rise apartments, those areas see the supply respond and almost by definition you get more people buying at the peak because that's where the supply is coming coming on and you may not see a huge crash across on a city-wide basis but if you pay too much in, at the peak you can see prices go down or, or just go nowhere for a very long time i, I think you know, the, the counter argument might be well Yes, San Francisco is damn expensive, but prices are still at record highs. So can you really call it a bubble? Yeah, I think you, you, the, for me, it always it, it always gets back to the, the earnings yield. And what you look at is, you know, the earnings yield's got two parts, which is the dividend, whether you or you know, the rent if you're talking about property, and the capital gain. But you don't get the capital gain until you actually sell. Um, and what you find is Everybody starts talking about the capital gain and nobody starts talking about the yield. And, Yields are uh, losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, who wants to receive a 6% yield when you can get, you know, a 25% capital gain? Yeah, well, look, it's exactly, you know, as we said this year, like you, you can identify a great energy company in Russia or something with, with a 6 or 7% yield and, you know, really strong long-term prospects, but nobody's really going to be interested in it when Bitcoin's gone from 15000 to 20000 in two months. So uh, you'll be yeah. dismissed as a boring old fuck. Yeah, well, what you find is, you know, if you think about it, Pete, nobody ever puts the, you never hear the words value and top dollar together in one sentence, you know. Like if, 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 if someone says, oh, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I paid top dollar for that baby, it's not as if you're thinking, well, I'll bet you got it really cheaply. What you're sort of saying is, uh, in other words, you know, I mean, the one that comes to my mind is, is like you were saying about paintings, but about cars. You know, car, enthous- and car enthusiasts, you know, will pay more, not because they rationalise the value, simply because they've got to have the, you know, the 1978 GT Monaro with a 308. And it's like, right, I've got to have that and I've got to pay it. And it gets the same in... Um, in all asset classes, whether it's stocks or in property as well, you know, because, I mean, you know property better than I do, but people get a penance for I've got to live on the north side or I've got to live on the south side. And I was listening to a a show during the week, which was really interesting, um, about a young woman. Anyway, she was talking about growing up in New York and the announcer was sort of saying, you know, what was New York like in the 70s? And she said, well, you know, these days, New York, and probably for the last 20 years, New York has been a real sort of glamour city. You know, and you've got to pay top dollar to live in New York because everybody wants to live in New York. 
Um, but she said, you know, in the 70s, there were one million people left New York in the 70s. And the reason why was because it was a goddamn awful place to live because it had high unemployment, it had uh, race issues, it had poverty, and it had a lot of crime. And so, you know, the, my point being, what you don't realise is that things change, you know, and you sort of go, oh, Sydney will always be a world city, and you, you sort of go, oh, yep, that's true, and then next minute you get COVID and everybody wants to go and live at Byron Bay or Mullaney, you know, but they don't want to hang around the cities. And so, again, it's always when you're in that bubble, again, the characteristics are that or one of the character, characteristics is that the, there's there's no sort of contrarian view or the contrarian view is like like you were saying before, oh, well, Buffett's an alpha, you know, what would you old guys know? You know, you don't even know how to use Microsoft, you know, Word or something, so what would you know about tech stocks? And it really gets back to that that same old thing, which is, yeah, 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 that's fine. How much am I going to pay for it and what's the return I'm going to get? In a lot of asset markets at the moment, whether it's property or stocks, to be quite honest, or Bitcoin, nobody's talking about what the yield is. Everybody's talking about what the capital gain is. And that's when, again, that's when I think you start to say people are starting to get a bit carried away here. And so, you know, no one ever talks about a bubble when the market's crashed, right? Yeah, it's a bit the same with uh, on the technical side of things. So I remember back in 2009, I used to follow quite closely um, this guy, Colin Nicholson. He'd been investing 40 years, so seen seen his fair share of cycles. And I remember him talking about the Copac indicator and when is it time to get back in? And I think uh, it's, it's a few years ago now, but he wouldn't have been far off the bottom and he was starting to pile back in into stocks around... 2009 and uh but at the time there's very little talk about that kind of stuff it was only really people like him uh of course you get sort of uh 10 or 12 years down the track and now everybody's doing technical analysis on everything and uh it's interesting how all that stuff seems to become popular when stuff is damn expensive not when it was actually cheap and uh the the more experienced heads were getting back in yeah yeah i think so i think you're right it just um, you get a lot of momentum, you know, a lot of momentum, lots of chatter. Everybody's talking about, you know, heads and shoulders patterns and, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's more email coming in telling us we're wrong. Um, but anyway, it, it really is that sort of that general enthusiasm, you know, there's sort of, you know, and I can understand part of it because you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be the downer at the party where you go, geez, I reckon property prices are too high or, you know, stocks are going crazy and anybody holding stocks at the moment is an idiot, which is your sort of connotation, you know, from people who are holding Bitcoin or something at the moment. So nobody really wants to hear that. And again, you know, one of the characteristics of the bubble is that when you mention taking a contrarian position, you actually get a bit of blowback on it. Um, And that happens in fundamental analysis which goes out the window, and it also happens in technical analysis as well. It's an interesting thing, actually. Um, if you, if you criticise an asset price and someone gives you blowback on it, that's a fair indication they're probably gambling and not investing because an investor will be far less concerned because if, if it gets cheaper, well, they can they can simply buy more. It's interesting um, financial bubbles 
first started really spreading or becoming a real thing with the the advent of the newspaper and of course now we've got the internet so uh, ideas and uh, and bubbles or perspective bubbles can spread much more easily i think it's it's interesting on the investor profile side of things i mean even just a I take my own uh, marriage as an example. You know, Heather will always be, and you know Heather well, a much better investor than me because she's very, very comfortable at just finding something that's cheap, uh, putting a, a big bet on it, and then just simply just leaving it. You know, I, I think as a as a young guy, especially, I just wanted to look at the price of stuff every single day, and I'd be reporting back to Heather, "Oh, it's up three percent. It's down two percent." You know, and, whereas um, I think. Um, you know, there's probably something in that that it's often younger men that are drive that drive euphoria, and um, you know perhaps the, the youth and inexperience is a part of it. Uh, but it's it's also there does seem to be some gender bias on that as well. Yeah, I think so. It um, usually it, it sort of brings us to the last characteristic, which is that also it, it's sort of the last thing that happens before the bubble actually bursts, which is people who don't normally talk about stocks suddenly start talking about stocks. And what that means is they've been infected, if I can use that word, by the information virus. You know, so in other words, the the stock market or the property markets get talked about so much that, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you are going to hear about it. And that's what, that's the sort of the, the last step in the sense of saying, you know, you think about it, if you're in the market, you're in the market. How does the price keep going up? Well, you've got to get new people in or new money in forcing the price up. Well, if you know, if 90% of people are in the pool, you got, the only way you can get more people in is to, you know, advertise and get more people into the market. Oh, you know, the pool's fantastic, the weather's fine, you know, the temperature's great, jump in. Eventually, people who are quite distrustful have to can't stand on the sidelines watching everybody enjoy themselves. Eventually, you sort of think, God, you know, it, if it's this easy, then I'm, it, it seems like a no-brainer just to get in. Um, and that's what you see with things like Robin Hood investors, um, TikTok investors. You know, like now we've got, you know, 18-year-olds on TikTok telling people about call options. I mean, you know, honestly, you've got to look at it. It's just ridiculous. David Portnoy, you know, a guy I wouldn't know from a bar of soap, is apparently, you know, a champion investor and he's dissing Warren Buffett. But, you know, Buffett always perform, underperforms in every bubble. He, you know, that's that's the way he does it. Buffett, Buffett's there when, the, when, you know, there's blood on the floor and he's got a big mop, you know, and that's the way he really does it. But it's, again, that that what you were saying before about the information starts to flow and, you know, these days with social media, information gets around the world in, in nanoseconds. And so the, in the old days where you had to get newspaper, you know, from town to town and city to city, um, now you get it instantaneously. And that leads to sort of group mentalities or pack behaviour that can drive stocks up really quickly. And when you've got a bunch of people who are sort of, surveying the market, you know, every second of the day looking for anomalies or, you know, price movements or momentum or all of those sort of indicators, what you get is you get these sloshing 
amounts of, you know, these huge amounts of capital sloshing around the world. And at the moment, it's even, I think it's even worse because what you've got is you've got a lot of wealthy people who are trying to get a yield. Now, they'd be the people who least need a yield, but at that level, it's a bit of a game, like you're saying before with the painting. You know, it's not the price of the painting. It's just the fact that everybody's got to have a Picasso or, you know, you're a nobody until you get a Monet or, you know, that sort of thing. And you tend to think that at that level, those people are fairly rational. But I've got not. a good they're, Rolf they're Harris really painting if anyone wants it. <laughs> They could go with your Jeffrey Boycott tapes. Yeah, I've got plenty of Jeff Boycott books. Uh, I think actually, yeah, I mean, there would be no reliable way to measure this because in 2010, nobody was really blogging as much as they are today. But there's certainly been an explosion in, as you said, YouTube videos, a lot of young experts now in, uh, well, all kinds of uh, formats, TikTok and everywhere else. Um, I think, uh, I mean, clearly there's been a big rise in recent years, but you went back to 10 years ago, it's very difficult to find good information on stocks because uh, everyone was so sick of, uh, of losses that um, it was, uh, well, it's just, it's just become more and more popular in recent years and everyone's an expert. The, the other thing that I remember from 2006, seven was just that leverage was everywhere, even with higher interest rates back then. There was... Uh, you know, we all had margin loans. That was just standard, you know. And uh, as you get towards the later stages of a cycle and the cape has gone from 15 to 35, then funds have got to do something to justify their fees. And using leverage is an obvious way to go. And obviously, now we have lower interest rates anyway. What measures do you look at, Steve, to get a gauge for the type of leverage that's surrounding markets. I saw an article this week that said, uh, should we all borrow to the Hilton buy stocks, which I thought was probably a pretty strong contraindicator. The biggest one is probably margin. When you start getting a lot of margin loans, that's when it, it's the uh, speculation increases. The interesting part about that, Pete, is the volatility. And what you, what you see is, and sort of not a lot of people don't realise this, when the markets are rising, margin debt feeds the market. And so as you're borrowing more, or you know, on a holistic point of view, the more people borrow, the more the price rises. So you get this nice little steady rise on a continuous basis. And so when you look at that, it, it seems like everything's really fine. But what you don't realise is there's more and more debt being created through margin loans. The really interesting point about margin is you don't get to decide all the time when to buy and sell the stocks. So, for example, if you come to me and I say, Pete, you're going to have a margin of a million bucks, you borrow the million dollars and you go and whack it into the market. If the market drops 5%, I can come back to you and say, Pete, I want my million bucks back. Now, that means you have to sell the stocks, right, unless you've got cash on the side or something. But the problem being, what I'm trying to allude to here is bubbles can deflate because the margin blows them up. Then when the bankers or the creditors get really nervous and say, listen, we want our money back, again, you get that trigger where the momentum is no longer upwards, the momentum is now downwards. And the more it clicks down, the more you get margin called. So, you know, that's again where it's very difficult 
to stop a bubble from bursting or stabilize, you know, to try and stabilize it. Because the reality is the prices are just too high. And at some stage, the price has got to get back into, you know, reality. Um, hence the reason why, you know, you look at Japan, the Cape ratio was like over 100 or something. That's why they've had miserable returns for such a long time, because there's been people who paid an enormous price for Tokyo property. And it's, you know, it will basically take them 50 years to get back to where they were because, you know, you think of if you're if you're getting a half a percent as an earnings yield or even one percent, and you don't take the capital gain when it's there, that means you've got like a hundred years or so, you know, to try and recoup that money. I mean, it's it's near not impossible. And so again, you just get this stuff where the bubbles go crazy and eventually it has to burst. The hard part's sitting there watching it. And everybody says the same question, when's it going to burst? Or, you know, what should I do about it when the bubble is happening? Yeah, I think that's the, the key point, isn't it? It's very hard to pick the, the top of these things or, or the bottom for that matter. But the, the point is that if you pay too much, uh, one way or another, you'll get bad returns over the, the coming 10 or 20 years, and, and in some cases even longer. So we've been through today the characteristics of bubbles and how you can begin to spot them I think um, we've seen some good examples in the last year or two of uh, fundamentals not mattering, the strong capital cycle, uh, more people coming in and giving us new technical analysis, um, the investor profile, generally younger men. There's, I think there's a lot of the, the things uh, or the boxes being ticked. And as you mentioned there at the end, the leverage cycle uh, just coming in over the top of the, the underlying narrative. So we'll wrap up on this mini-series in the coming episodes where we'll talk about what serious investors should actually do during periods of speculation and fundamentals becoming disconnected. So thanks for joining again today, Steve. Um, It'll be great when we can actually get back into the studio. But in the meantime, we'll keep on with our socially distanced podcasting. (laughs) Good to talk to you, Pete. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter So do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.